Let me just begin with the same question that Jay Warner Wallace asked in that video. Why are you a Christian? I mean, if this afternoon you go out and get something to eat after church and you go to lunch and you order your food, they bring your food and you stop and you bless the food, you pray over it before you eat, and somebody who's sitting in the next booth over looks at that and thinks that's kind of weird, and after you pray they go, why do you do that? Well, you don't really believe that God stuff, do you? What would you say? He gives three answers that typically people in church give. I'll just throw them up on the screen there. Typical reasons for being a Christian is I was raised as a Christian. I had a God experience. I experienced something that only God could uh, explain. Or I was, you know, he said, I used to be a jerk. I'm not quite as much of a jerk anymore. So I've been transformed by Jesus. And that's kind of the, the answers that many people give. Now, I just want to ask the question. How many of you would raise your hand and say, yeah, that one of those reasons is why I'm a Christian. Just, I mean, I, I'm raising my hand because I got all three of those. I mean, well. I mean, hope I'm not a jerk. But anyway, you know, I got at least the first two. So raise your hand. Go ahead. Raise your hand if you would say, yeah, one of those three reasons is why I am a Christian. Okay, that's most of the people in here. And that's good. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just, as he said, uh, most uh, religions could say the same three things. And most of the time, don't we? We hold our beliefs because we think they're true. It's not just that we, we I mean, if we think something's false, we don't believe it. Right? We, we usually believe things because we think they're actually true. So here's the question. Is Christianity true? In fact, here's the follow-up question. Is there any evidence for the truth of Christianity? Is there any objective evidence for our faith? Carl Sagan was an agnostic uh, physicist. He was famous for his uh, TV show Cosmos, which uh, begins with that word, the, that famous sentence he made famous. The cosmos is all that is or was or ever will be. So obviously right there he tells you where he's coming from. He only believes reality goes as far as what you can see physically. He said this in one of his books called The Demon Haunted World, not recommending the book, just using his illustration. He wrote a chapter called The Dragon in My Garage. And he asked us to do this kind of thought experiment. Let's say after church somebody comes up and says, hey, I have a fire-breathing dragon in my garage. Would you believe him? Would you probably say, I'd like to see some evidence for your so-called fire-breathing dragon. So let's go so I can look in your garage. And they say, well, you won't see him because he's an invisible fire-breathing dragon. Okay, well, if he's invisible, maybe we could throw some flour on the floor, and then whenever he moves, we could see the footprints, right, or his, his fingerprints. And, and, and the person says, no, he, can't, he floats. Okay, so we have, an imba- we, have, we have an invisible fire-breathing dragon that floats. Well, maybe we could just take a can of spray paint and spray it in the room and it would land. Oh, no, no, he's incorporeal, so you, get, you can reach right through him. Okay, well, he's incorporeal. Okay, well, um, you know, maybe we could measure the temperature in your garage because when he breathes fire, surely the temperature. No, his fire isn't hot. So every time you ask for evidence, there's an evasion. So, so you might ask, okay, 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 well, um, uh, I know your brother in the Lord and everything, but what's the difference between your invisible, incorporeal, cold <laughs> dragon that floats and an imaginary dragon? Or no dragon at all. And then Sagan says, the only sensible approach is to tentatively reject the dragon hypothesis, to be open to future physical data, and to wonder what might cause this person, apparently sane and sober, to share such a same strange delusion? Now, the reason I told that story is because when it comes to dragons, we would probably agree with Sagan, right? I mean, if, if, if you guys come up, if somebody comes up after church and actually says, no, I'm not kidding, Pastor Tim, I have an invisible fire-breathing dragon. 
I'm going to say, security! I'm going to, like, I'm not, I'm going to be the skeptic for the claim of the dragon. But the skeptic says, can't we use the same kind of logic for God? Uh, why can't we be skeptical about God? I can't see him. I don't feel his breath. I can't touch him. Is there any evidence we can point to? To keep our analogy going, is there some flower we can throw on the floor to see the footprints or the fingerprints of God? Spoiler alert, I think there is. In fact, I know there is, and I'm very passionate about it these days, and for good reason. Um, since World War II, I don't know if you guys know this, but since World War II, the rate of atheism in America has pretty much stayed the same. It fluctuates only 2% every year. Uh, they do this since 1945. They've done this study over and over again every couple of years. And it's never different. It's always between 5 and 7% in America since 1945. With one major exception. Generation Z, which is the generation, anybody born in 1999 or later. Okay, so anybody 19 years old or younger, generation, I don't know what we're going to call the next generation. Um, we ran out of letters at the alphabet. We're going to go to Espanol or something. I don't know. Um, but we're at, so look, Generation Z, listen to this. All the statistics for Generation Z are saying the rate of atheism has doubled. It's now almost 13%. I am not okay with that. I have four sons. Two of them are in that demographic. My sons don't belong to the world. They don't belong to Satan. They belong to God. And I promise you that your kids and your grandkids are being confronted with this far earlier and far more often than you ever dreamed. Even if you say, well, I'm sending them to a Christian school. Even there. Even if you're homeschooling them, okay? Sooner or later, if not before, it's crouching. It's waiting to pounce on them when they go away to college. And listen, my hope for the kids in our church that are under my shepherding care and your parenting care is that whenever they get out there and they hear an objection to the gospel, it's the second time they've heard it. My hope is that when they get out there and they hear an objection, it's like they're not like, oh, no, I didn't know there was an objection. They go, oh, no, I, my dad already told me about this. My mom, I already heard Pastor Tim or Pastor Denny or Pastor whoever, you know, we already talked about this. And they might not remember the answer, but they remember there is an answer. Right. Do, you, do you guys know this? Jesus was never scared of questions. You know why? Because he said, I am the truth. <laughs> so he was never scared. You ask a question. Now, he might say, hey, you're asking the wrong question. Let me ask a better one for you. Now, he did that a lot of times, but he was never scared of questions. Oh, no, because he was the truth. Every question is going to end up with Jesus, which means what? We don't have to be scared of questions. We'll be okay with that. I mean, I, and just a little, if I can do this, just a little pastoral coaching here. Um, if you have kids or grandkids that are affected by this and they come home and they say something like, you know, I'm really questioning if there is a God. If your kid or grandkid comes up and says that, if you freak out, if you say, don't, don't say that, don't say that. you're scaring me right now. You're scared. You know, if you freak out, you have just proven to them that you're not a safe place for them to bring doubts. You don't, don't, don't do that. You, now what you've done, you've put them in a worse place because now they're on their own by themselves getting wisdom from the world. That's the worst place they could be. Here's a better way. If, you're, if your kid comes in and says that, is to say, you know what? <laughs> that is the most important question you could ever ask. I'm glad you're taking this seriously because the answer to that question, whether or not there's a God, that's going to affect literally everything in your life. 
I mean, it's going to affect your ethics, your morals, who you marry, how you raise your kids, uh, what job you take, how you spend money, how you live, what you live for, how you measure success, how you look at death. <laughs> Literally everything in your life is affected by whether or not there is a God. So can I walk with you through that as we look at the evidence together? And then when they turn around, you pray like crazy. So I'm going to give you some of the evidence today for God's existence. I'm going to give you just three uh, clues uh, today that point towards God. Uh, there are a lot more I could give you. A friend of mine just edited a book that was recently published called A Dozen or So Arguments for God. Uh, I'm not going to give you a dozen or so, so nobody get nervous. The service won't be that long. Uh, only three. And, of course, this message is supposed to be a bit of a teaser trailer for our conference we're going to do in November. You know, Captain Marvel's going to come out next year. Now we're seeing these teaser trailers. Now this is a little bit of a teaser trailer uh, for November. Now, some of you may be asking, before I dive into that, you may be asking, why do we got to do this? You know, I'm already a believer. Well, I have three aims this morning and in this conference that's coming up. Aim number one is, I want to convince non-believers. I, I, I mean, I, unapologetically, I want to be an evangelist. I want, <laughs> I want people to, I, I, this morning with the elders, we're praying, God, give us souls today. Man, I want people to get saved. And, to turn, and listen, I know not everybody here is a believer. Not everybody in this room right now is a believer. I know that. And maybe you're here and, and you have some doubts, but you're kind of even scared to even admit your doubts, you know, because sadly, sometimes a church doesn't feel like a safe place to admit, I got some questions. <laughs> and for that, I'm sorry, because I do want this to be a safe place. And I hope that this answers some of your questions. Or maybe you're a young person and you're like, I don't know if all this stuff my parents and grandparents talk about is really true. Well, I hope that you see today and, and in this conference next month that, that there's great evidence that this is true. I want my kids to know. We didn't make this up. Dear Lord, if we were going to make something up, we'd make up something easier. Goodness. I'd go get an easier job that pays more. I mean, like, you know, if I'm going to make something up. Goodness. I, was, I want to convince non-believers. But number two, I want to deepen the faith of believers. See, sometimes we say we believe something, uh, and then when we saw, see that there's evidence for it, we go, whoa, now I really believe it. <laughs> it. There's an epidemic in the church today, and this is true, there's an epidemic in the church today of what we might call practical atheism. And, and here's what, it's functional or practical atheism. Well, here's what practical atheism does. It says on Sunday morning, oh, God, you're good. God is great. I love you, Jesus. But it doesn't affect how you live Monday to Saturday. So you say with your mouth you believe God on Sunday, but it, you don't believe him enough to change how you live Monday to Saturday. So my hope is that that's what happens. And don't we all know that even Christians have questions? Can, can we just admit that? Don't tell anybody outside the wall. Just in here, can we just admit, like, we have questions too? I, I mean, you have questions? I, well, all of us, you know, a lot of us are really like the dad in Mark chapter 9. Remember this dad, he brings his son to the disciples to heal him, you know, cast out a demon, and they can't do it. And Jesus shows up and says, what's going on? Well, I brought my son to your disciples, but they couldn't do anything. But if you can do anything. And Jesus said, excuse me? If I can do anything, everything is possible to him who believes. And, and in other words, it ain't about whether or not I can, I can do it, okay? It's about whether or not you can believe. And instantly, the father says, I believe, help my unbelief. You know what I think? A lot of us are like that guy. We do believe. Absolutely. I got faith. And help me, God, with my unbelief. 
The third reason we're doing this is because I hope to equip us to share our faith better. J. Warner Wallace mentioned 1 Peter 3, which says, always be prepared to give an answer. The older translations say, make a defense. It's the word we get the word apologetics, right? To everyone uh, who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. So here's what's implied. We live full of hope. And then people go, why you got that hope? And then we make a defense. We give an answer. But we do it, look at the rest of the verse, with gentleness and respect. In other words, I'm going to give you some arguments today. But don't run to the mall and grab the first sinner you meet and say, you stupid sinner. No, gentleness. Respect. Listen, if we just do that, we'll be countercultural. Watch any news. I don't care what. We as a culture have lost the ability to have civil discourse. And so if we just show respect to people and, and, and are gentle with people, we'll be countercultural. Paul said it this way in Colossians 4 verse 5. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. So somebody comes to you. Why do you have this hope? Be ready. Make the most of the opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace. See, just like Peter, gentleness, respect, grace, seasoned with salt so that you know how to answer everyone. Jude 3 says it this way. Contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. We're supposed to be contending for the faith. So let's look at the evidence right now. And we're going to do this. Has any, raise your hand if you've ever played the board game Clue. Right? And how many people here have played the board? Not everybody, okay. But a lot of people have played the board game Clue. And, you know, you get evidence, and then you make these guesses of who it was and where they did it and how they did it. You know, it was Professor Plum uh, with a lead pipe in the library, okay? And, and, and we go through it. Now, if you're a visitor here, um, uh, this message is going to be a little bit different than normal. Normally, we, we take a text of Scripture and we expound it. I believe that's the most biblical way to preach. But today is going to be a little bit different. Because I'm going to look at the clues that there are for God's existence. And let me just say, uh, if you're a visitor or if you're not a visitor, we here believe Jesus is Lord over everything. Everything. So guess what? We ain't scared of questions. And you know what? We include our brain in that. Jesus is not, for a lot of Christians, Jesus is Lord over their heart, but he ain't Lord over their pocketbook. Or Jesus is Lord over their hands, but not their head. We believe Jesus is Lord over everything, right? So including uh, that our minds should be on fire for Jesus. So let's look at the clues. Clue number one. Clue number one is what we call the Goldilocks argument. All right. Or also known as the fine-tuning argument. Everybody knows the the story of Goldilocks is a children's story. Uh, this, This child breaks into this house uninvited which is kind of weird for a children's story now that I think about it. But anyway, uh, this, you know, somebody breaks and, and, and there's um, a chair that's too big and one that's too small and one that's just right. You know, there's, this, there's porridge and, and, and one's too hot and one's too cold and one's just right. And then there's beds and one's too hard and one's too soft and one's just right, right? Well, the Goldilocks or the fine-tuning argument says that for life to exist at all, there are a number of things that had to be just right for life to emerge and be sustained. And when I say just right, I mean just right. Okay, in fact, to kind of help you with this, and because I'm not a physicist, I'm a pastor, <laughs> and I don't, I don't know if you know this, there are no performance-enhancing drugs for pastors. I don't know, there's, 
there's no drug tests either, but because of that, I, um, <laughs> maybe there should. Now, anyway, um, I, because of that, I want, I want to uh, jump into this argument by showing you a quick little two-minute video. So let's watch this. From galaxies and stars down to atoms and subatomic particles, the very structure of our universe is determined by these numbers. These are the fundamental constants and quantities of the universe. Scientists have come to the shocking realization that each of these numbers has been carefully dialed to an astonishingly precise value, a value that falls within an exceedingly narrow, life-permitting range. If any one of these numbers were altered by even a hair's breadth, no physical, interactive life of any kind could exist anywhere. There'd be no stars, no life, no planets, no chemistry. Consider gravity, for example. The force of gravity is determined by the gravitational constant. If this constant varied by just one in 10 to the 60th parts, none of us would exist. To understand how exceedingly narrow this life-permitting range is, imagine a dial divided into 10 to the 60th increments. To get a handle on how many tiny points on the dial this is, compare it to the number of cells in your body, or the number of seconds that have ticked by since time began. If the gravitational constant had been out of tune by just one of these infinitesimally small increments, the universe would either have expanded and thinned out so rapidly that no stars could form and life couldn't exist, or it would have collapsed back on itself with the same result. No stars, no planets, and no life. Or consider the expansion rate of the universe. This is driven by the cosmological constant. A change in its value by a mere one part in 10 to the 120th parts would cause the universe to expand too rapidly or too slowly. In either case, the universe would again be life prohibiting. Or another example of fine tuning. If the mass and energy of the early universe were not evenly distributed to an incomprehensible precision of one part in 10 to the 10 to the 123rd, the universe would be hostile to life of any kind. The fact is, our universe permits physical, interactive life only because these, and many other numbers, have been independently and exquisitely balanced on a razor's edge. Now, to kind of unpack that a lot, because you just saw a lot in two minutes, uh, there's been a book, as I said, I'm not a physicist here, but Hugh Ross has come out with a book called The Creator and the Cosmos, and he just came out with the fourth edition. And in there, he talks about those cosmic constants, right, and how they're balanced in finely tuned ways. And, and one of the statistics he gives is that if the ratio of the electromagnetic force to the gravitational force were off by even 1 in 10 to the 37th power, life could not exist. Now, you're saying, I know some of you are thinking, it was my understanding there would be no math at church. Oh, okay, just hang with me a little bit, all right? Uh, if you're a visitor, we don't like to brag about this, but we're a highly intelligent church. We don't put that on our webpage, uh, but not only are we good looking, but we're smart too. I know, it's, I know you, you, you definitely want to be a part of this church. Anyway, um, uh, so 1 in 10 to the 37th power, some of you are thinking, is that a big number? Okay, here's, here's the same probability. 1 in 10 to the 37th power is the same probability if you take all of North America, Canada, United States, and Mexico cover all of North America in dimes, okay? Dimes. You know what a dime is? All right, yeah, okay. 
small, right? Okay, you cover the whole thing in dimes. You stack it up to the moon, which is roughly 238,900 miles. Okay, roughly speaking, give or take a few. Okay, uh, yeah, for all the, if there's any physicists in here, please allow round numbers. Okay, um, so, and then do that for a million more continents the size of North America. Okay, so we got a million and one continents the size of America, covered in dimes, stacked all the way up to the moon. You take one dime, you put a red X on the back of it, you throw it in the middle of one of the one, one million and one um, North Americas with dimes stacked up to the moon. You take your friend who's been blindfolded the whole time, and they randomly go through the one million and one North Americas with dimes stacked up to the moon, and they stick their hand in, and the first one they pick is the one with the X on it. That's the same probability of 1 in 10 to the 37th power. Feel free to gasp. That's led the late Stephen Hawking to write, who wasn't a believer. He said, the laws of science as we know them at present contain many fundamental numbers, like the size of the electric charge of the electron. And and then he goes through other numbers. And then he says, the remarkable fact that the values of these numbers seem to have been very finely adjusted to make possible the development of life. He's like, like, now, it can't be, but it almost seems like somebody did this on purpose. It can't be blind luck. That's just one variable, okay? That's just one variable that had to be just right. Here's the kicker. Do you want the kicker? Oh, you want the kicker? Here's the kicker. There's not just one thing that had to be finely tuned for life to exist. There are 140 that we know of. And the average for all 140, now some of them are more. You saw the one in there that was 1 in 10 to the 120th power. The average for these 140 variables are 1 in 10 to the 40th power. The probability of happening on accident. So take the strong nuclear force. If it was just a little bit more, just 1 in 10 to the 40th power more, we're all dead. Uh, actually, we never existed. Or the, the, the weak nuclear force, or the gravitational force, or, did you know this? The size of Jupiter. If Jupiter was bigger than it is, we'd all be dead. If it was smaller than it is, we'd all be dead. Same thing with the moon. If the distance were different, we'd, I mean, it's just crazy. It's led physicist Freeman Dyson to write, again, not a believer, it's as if the universe saw us coming. <laughs> You think? I mean, like, 140 different variables had to be just right. And if any of them, not just, not, not like half of them, if any one of them were off, not by 1%, that would be 1 in 100, right? And that would be amazing if we had 140 variables and it was just 1, one in 100 for each one. Uh, that would be amazing. But it's not 1 in 100. It's 1 in 10 to the 40th power. You're not impressed. Let me try again. Um, to get the actual odds of that actually happening by accident, you have to multiply 1 in 10 to the 40th power times 1 in 10 to the 40th power times 1 in 10 to the 140 times. You're still not getting it. Okay. Uh, let, me, let, me, let me try this. Okay, I got, I have a dice. Uh, die. I, die. Thank you. <laughs> I accidentally gave the floor. Okay, I die. Okay, we have the die right here. Okay, what is, I'm going to, uh, you know, this is how they do on TV. I actually have my wife blow on it. Okay, what is the probability, I mean, you know, notwithstanding the fact that she blew on it, what is the probability I'm going to roll a three? One and six, okay. Ah, it's a two. Okay, okay, it's a two, uh, which because 
there's five and six chance I'm not going to roll a three, right? Now, what's the chance I'm going to roll two threes in a row? One in 36. I heard it over here. Yeah, it's, you have to multiply. It's one in 36. What's the chance that you're going to roll three threes in a row? 216. What's the chance that you're going to roll six threes in a row? <laughs> okay. It's one in, if I did my math right, and again, I'm not a mathematician, but if I did my math right, it's one in 46,656. That I'm going to row six threes in a row. Now, let's just say, this isn't going to happen, okay? This is just an illustration. But let's say tomorrow the elders get an email from me. And I say, guys, I'm feeling good. Um, so I took yesterday's offering, which was 28,820 or whatever it's going to be. And uh, I went to Vegas. Uh, and I'm in Vegas. And I just feel really good about putting all $28,820 on me rolling six threes in a row. And the probability is just one in 46,656. What do you think the elders are going to say? Yeah, there are lots of ideas. Unless I hit it. If I hit it, they're going to say, oh, he's full of the Holy Ghost. Is it? Right? Because the building's paid off. Now, now. Now, here's the deal. If I go to Vegas with 28,800 or whatever the offering is, and I actually do roll six threes in a row, what are the people in Vegas going to think? Some of you have been to Vegas. I see how this, this illustration was designed to flush out the gamblers in the room. No, no, I'm, it wasn't. It wasn't. Okay. They're going to think I cheated. Why? Because one in 46,656? No. And it just happened on the one time that I flew to Vegas and put $28,820 down? Really? Like, they would assume that there was a mind behind it. It would be a reasonable conclusion that somebody monkeyed with the dice so that it always ends up with a three. So if you would conclude that with the odds of one in 46,656, what should you conclude when the probability of the universe accidentally being life permitted is not one in 46,656, it's one in 10 to the 40th power times one in 10 to the 40th power times one in 10 to the 40th power 140 times. <laughs> It's reasonable to assume that some sort of intelligent mind is behind the universe. And it seems to me, it's just me, but it seems to me at least unreasonable to assume the opposite. That it's just by accident, random, like we got lucky. Like, when I say lucky, I mean really lucky. It occurs to me it takes more faith to believe this universe came from blind luck, random chance, than it was to believe there's an intelligent mind. Made it Fred Hoyle, another physicist, not a believer, said, a, listen to this, a common sense interpretation of the facts, which is my favorite kind of interpretation of the facts, uh, a common sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a super intellect has monkeyed with physics. He doesn't say anything about God, but some mind has, the numbers that one calculates from the facts seem to me so overwhelming as to put the conclusion almost beyond question. Almost. You make me a Christian. That's what he said. As the self-proclaimed agnostic and famous physicist, and this is my last quote from a physicist, Robert Jastrow said this, and I quote, For the scientist who has lived by faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. 
He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak as he pulls himself over the final rock. He is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. (laughs) The psalmist said, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display. Every time you walk outside, creation is talking about God's glory. I think that's pretty good evidence. I think that's a pretty good clue. And just before I go to the next one, just as practical application of that, think of it this way. Our existence is a statistical and scientific virtual impossibility. And yet here we are this morning. We're not only existing, we're talking about the fact we exist. So we're conscious. And we're asking the question, can miracles happen? A very conservative scientific answer is, you are one. Can miracles They are miracles. You know what that means? Man, maybe you got a hard thing you're going through in life. Hey, we serve the God who does miracles. And as I was praying about this, I, this, this number popped in my head that maybe, and I don't know, I just throw this out here, I'll just submit it to you, that if there's somebody and the doctor told you you got a 30% chance of beating whatever you're going through, know this, that is awesome odds for God. Three out of ten? Shoot, he created the universe is one out of ten to the 40th power times that, 140 times. So three out of ten, man, that's like money in the bank for God. So he does miracles, and I believe he's going to do some today. All right, I don't have time to take that any further. Clue number two, and I promise this one will have less math and be shorter. Clue number two is the desire for meaning. Every single person you meet, if they're Christian, Jew, Muslim, or atheist, doesn't matter, they have a desire inside of them, a longing for more. We all have that. We have a desire for meaning, don't we? We have a desire for significance. We have a hunger for for dignity and human worth, and, and we want good to overcome evil. Right? We want good to win. We, we, we want love to win. And, and we want things to make sense. We want them to be rational. But if the atheist view of reality is correct, and all we are is a blob of carbon, a random collection of molecules, the result of blind luck, a random chance, where does that desire come from? It doesn't make sense that evolution would produce that in us. Why are we so miserable with what is? Like, why, why are we disappointed with the way the world is? We look, we look at the world, you watch the news, and you think, this isn't right. How do you explain our disappointment? Where did we get the idea it should be any different? I had an interaction with a young lady um, who, uh, some things were happening. She saw, she was looking at a number of evil things in the world, and she said, you know, I've just given up my faith. I don't, I don't believe a good God could allow that to happen if there was a God. And uh, so I just totally believe it's all random chance and luck. And I'm like, really? And so, and, and you know, you don't jump right on this. You try to hear out what's going on in her life. And, and she told me about the evil that she was experiencing. And um, so then I said, maybe the fact that you're upset is a clue. She said, what are you talking about? I said, well, it, 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 if there's no design, okay, if we're just an accident and life is just survival of the fittest, then why does it break our heart when evil happens? Why do we get angry at injustice? I mean, if it's all a result of chance, where did we even get the idea of justice? 
Where, where did we even get the idea of right and wrong, good and evil? Where did that come from? Why is it that all of us here this week, when we saw the footage of Hurricane Michael in Florida, it broke our hearts? It's just random chance, guys. Just blobs of carbon that died. No, intuitively, we know it's more than that. Human beings are more than blobs of carbon. We all know that. There's got to be some meaning. Otherwise, why are we heartbroken when people die? See, we have these longings in us that go beyond nature. They outrun nature. And everywhere, in other words, every desire we have has some fulfillment. Like we, we need air. There's air. Right? We, we get hungry. There's such a thing as food. We, you know, we get thirsty. There's such a thing as water. Uh, we have sexual drives. There's such a thing as sex. Every single drive and desire we have, there's something there to fulfill it. But we all have something in us that can't be fulfilled in this world. C.S. Lewis put it this way in mere Christianity. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that doesn't mean the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. What is he saying? That this hunger we have that never gets quenched, it never gets uh, satisfied, this longing in us is a clue. It's pointing to something beyond us. Uh, try this illustration. I, and I stole this from Greg Boyd as I still... Many things from many people. Um, only ideas, not property. Um, uh, and I give him credit. Okay, so um, uh, he, he says, think of it this way. Uh, so let's say we're going to go on a mission trip, okay, to the Amazon. And we go down into the Amazon and we meet a tribe that has never met any outside influence. Okay, we're, we're in this tribe in the Amazon. They've never seen a, a, anybody else outside of their tribe. And we kind of get to know them. And it turns out they love skiing. Like they're a tribe in the Amazon and they Look, they have this desire to ski. They have this longing to ski. I mean, they, they write songs about skiing. They write poetry about skiing. They, they, they even build these long skis, and they, they sand them down, and they polish them, and, and, and there's no such thing as skiing in their world. There, there's no snow in the Amazon jungle. There's no, you know, there's, not, there's no hills like that that they can just go. You know, but they, but they, in fact, some of them have this longing so bad to ski, and there's no skiing in the world, so they commit suicide. Here's the question. Wouldn't that be weird? And wouldn't you ask, how did that happen? Like, 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 how did they get the idea of skiing? How did they get this desire? Where did this desire come from? Why did they have this longing? I, gotta, I just got, there's got to be more. There's got to be skiing. <laughs> wouldn't you ask the question, where, that must have come somewhere. Somebody came down here and introduced them to the concept. In the same way. We are moral, rational, intentional, purposeful beings, but we're being told we're the product of an amoral, irrational, unintentional universe that has no purpose. It doesn't make sense. I mean, if the materialistic view of the world is correct and we're just the result of an accident, you can't make sense out of the fact that you want things to make sense because there is no sense. Even more profoundly, you can't make sense out of the fact that you can make sense. Did that make sense? <laughs> Let me attempt to make sense. Let me explain it this way. We want to explain things. We want things to be rational. And as it turns out, they are. 
That's what science is all about. Figuring out the rationality in nature and manipulating it for technology for our advantage. That's where we get cell phones. The very discipline of science itself presupposes reason in the universe that we can discover. If it's all by accident, where'd that come from? If, on the other hand, we are made in the image of a rational, moral, intentional God, as Genesis 1 says we are, then our desire makes sense. We are made in the image of a supernatural God. And, and, and don't let supernatural scare you. It just means beyond nature. We are made in the image of a supernatural God, which totally makes sense of our supernatural longing. It's a clue. Third clue. And look, there's a lot of great arguments for God. And faith, I've given you two so far. I could give more. But none of those are the best reasons to believe because the best reason isn't an argument. It's a person. His name is Jesus. So if I can even use the language, clue number three, it's really person. Jesus. When I say Jesus, I don't mean just what he did 2,000 years ago, although everything is, that we say is built on that, his life, his teachings, his, his miracles, his death atoning for our, our sins, his resurrection from the dead. And, 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 and I believe there's good historical evidence for all of that. And in fact, back at Easter Sunday, I did a whole message called Nobody's Fool. And if you're interested in that, you can go look it up online and listen to it. But I'm not talking about that. When I say Jesus is the greatest clue to God's existence. Here's what I mean. Jesus, who is Lord of all and is alive and is here today to change your life. I don't, I don't have a better way of, of saying it than John Ortberg's phrase. Jesus comes shining through. In strange places. In unexpected ways. Through our inadequacy, Jesus comes shining through. It, it happened to a, a murderous, self-righteous Pharisee named Saul. It happened to a scandalized, isolated tax collector named Zacchaeus. It happened to a humiliated lawyer named Chuck Colson, to a humble little activist named Mother Teresa. Jesus comes shining through in places of enormous human despair and loneliness. I have seen Jesus come shining through in poverty in Haiti. We've got a team, part of them in Uganda, and, and, and Tammy's back from Uganda. Welcome home, Tammy. But in Uganda, Jesus came shining through. In, 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 in the aftermath of the natural disasters lately, in, in, in the unmatched beauty of his life, the unrivaled brilliance of his teaching, the man of sorrows meets people in their tears like nobody else. Found out just a couple weeks ago that my pastor, for our pastor from college days, and we were in, living in Minnesota, is retiring. He's stepping down, and they had done some time ago a little interview in their church paper. And this guy's been through everything. I mean, he's, I mean, he's been through persecution. He's been through, uh, I mean, they, they burned his house down. <laughs> they, uh, like, um, you, you know, he's um, church splits. He's been stabbed in the back. I mean, like, this guy's been through a lot of things. And so they interviewed him for the church paper, and they said, how does anybody put up with this for year after year after year? How do you keep going? 40 years, almost 40 years he's been pastor there. I'll never forget his answer. He said, because... In the middle of all the church silliness and then the persecution and all the stuff that didn't go the way I wanted them to, Jesus is still the sweetest name I know. I could tell story after story. 
of people facing trials, facing hardship. And Jesus takes them through it with joy. A few weeks ago, my, my uncle, who's 88, Michael James, he gets stat flighted into Louisville to have open heart surgery. And I get to the hospital. Dad was already there. I get to the hospital. They're wheel, literally wheeling him out of his room to go into the surgical, uh, you know, uh, what do you call it? I almost said arena. It, you don't call it arena, do you? Sweet? The sweet, yeah. Oh, that's a good name, the sweet. <laughs> anyway, whatever it is, the Coliseum, uh, uh, the, where they do surgeries. They're getting ready to wheel him in there. And, and I walk out. Yeah, Dad was there. I was like, Uncle James, he said, hey, how are you doing? And I said, well, I'm doing fine. I'm, you're the one I'm concerned about. Um, and, and, he, and he says, isn't Jesus good? <laughs> the crucified, risen Jesus meets people where they are. And he gives them courage to face life and to face death like nobody else. And if you know Jesus, you know what I'm talking about. In the strangest places, the most unexpected ways, the best reason to believe has a face and a name. Jesus comes shining through. It happened to me. As a kid in Paris, Tennessee, we were at Sunday night church. Pastor Kevin mentioned Sunday night church last week. A lot of the kids don't know what that is. But just think of it this way. It was the JV service of church services. I mean, that, I mean that, that's true, right? It was kind of like we didn't, we, didn't, we didn't put that on the web page. We didn't have a web page, actually. Uh, it was like we would let people preach on Sunday night that you weren't going to let them preach on Sunday morning. Uh, you know, we let, or, or, or sing. We let people sing on Sunday night. You wouldn't listen. You know, it was one. I remember where was one guy, we would let him play the drums on Sunday night, but never any other time. Because he couldn't keep rhythm. Which, I don't play the drums, but I've heard that's pretty important. And, and you know, the message wasn't quite as well prepared on Sunday night, and there weren't near as many people. The crowd was sparse. But Jesus came shining through. And on this one particular Sunday night, I heard my dad preach about having a relationship with Jesus. And I got to thinking about it. And later that week, as I'm playing with trucks on the floor at our house, I'm thinking about a relationship with Jesus. And it wasn't just that I didn't want to go to hell, although that didn't sound like a party to me. Okay, I mean, I wasn't like, oh, gee, you know, no big deal. No, it, but it wasn't that. So I wanted to have a new best friend. I realized how I had sinned and that my sin had broken my relationship with God. But Jesus came for me. So I went in and I talked to my mom and we got together and we prayed and Jesus came shining through. And hey, I can't imagine my life without him. I can't. Why am I a Christian? Because I believe it's true. I believe there's a lot of great evidence for it. But more than all that, Jesus is more real to me than my next breath. And if you can't say that today, he's inviting you to be able to say that.